Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Let's talk about the RCMP in Surrey now. Now, you know that Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has said, look, we're getting rid of the Mounties in Surrey. We're going to bring in a local police force. He's been very consistent on that. But this pandemic, I think, maybe potentially throwing a wrench in the works here. But have a listen to this first. Here is Doug McCallum uh, vowing to get rid of the Mounties in Surrey. The time has arrived, and some would say it's been long overdue for Surrey to have local control and responsibility over its policing. Today, I am here to announce that in just over one year, we've moved from a unanimous council motion to full reality on our promise to the citizens of Surrey. Far quicker than even I thought possible, we have received the final approval required to establish the Surrey Police Board. Okay, whatever you think of McCallum, he's been pretty consistent on saying he's going to get rid of the Mounties and bring in a local police force. But with the pandemic raging and affecting all our lives, how does that impact this plan? And do a lot of people in Surrey maybe want to keep the Mounties now? Let's check in with Brian Sove. He is the president of the National Police Federation. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Brian. Good morning, Mike. Okay, first of all, let me ask you, Brian, the National Police Federation, you guys want to unionize the RCMP, right? <clears throat> well, we have done that. Actually, we were uh, certified by the Federal Labor Board uh, last summer, July 2019. So uh, effectively, we do represent all members, close to 20,000 of them across the country, and uh, just under uh, 850 or so in working in Surrey. Okay, very interesting, Brian. Tell me about the situation with the plan to get rid of the Surrey Mounties and bring in a local police force. I know you guys have a new opinion poll you've just commissioned, and it's got some interesting numbers. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, that, that that quote from the mayor spoke to a unanimous motion, which uh, I agree was, uh, was a unanimous motion. But then shortly thereafter, consistent with our polling uh, that we started in January and then followed up with in April, uh, as... Um, data or more information comes available, you've seen a couple of councillors in Surrey um, uh, move away from that yeah. unanimous position, and you're also starting to see the public realize that this is uh, going to cost a lot more, and perhaps it's not the wise time to do it. Now, with COVID uh, and the, um, the possible costs associated with that, the latest poll data is showing us almost 90% of residents in Surrey are saying council needs to reassess uh, their priorities, Whoa. and policing is not one of them. 90%? Yeah. 90%? 90% of Surrey residents. So what exactly are they saying? They want to put the brakes on the plan? Well, basically, they agree, I think, the, uh, that uh, that mayor and council need to take a step back and evaluate its spending plans to ensure they're focused on the most urgent priorities. And what does that, what does that mean? Well, urgent priorities to them uh, is, you know, I think what we've seen through this COVID pandemic is uh, across the country, people appreciate, experience the knowledgeable first responders in their community, right? The Surrey RCMP, we have 850 members there who live 
raise families and work in that community and they know that community and essentially they they don't want to leave okay how many surrey residents think that getting rid of the rcmp and replacing it with a local police force should be a top priority right now with this pandemic going on uh i think only about 16 percent 16 percent in your survey okay brian when people are listening to this and they might be thinking to themselves hang on a second here this guy represents the union at the rcmp so obviously he doesn't want to see the largest rcmp detachment in the country get shut down so yeah we know where this guy's bread is buttered here that's what this is about what, what would you say to them uh i'd say it, i don't i don't want to see any detachment shut down Clearly, obviously, I'll admit that. But my job is to represent the members of the RCMP and the members that in Surrey have told me that, you know, like I said, they live, they raise their families and they have decades of experience working in Surrey. They don't want to have to look for other opportunities or other positions within the RCMP uh, to move away. So, you know, it's it's really about maintaining continuity of service with people that know the policing needs in the community in Surrey. Uh, and that's where our membership want to stay and want to serve. Okay, speaking of Brian Sove, president of the National Police Federation, that's the, the union that represents RCMP officers. Brian, when you take a look at how McCallum has got to this point with the plan to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a local police force, he did it. He campaigned clearly on that during the last municipal election. He won a big mandate at Surrey City Council. Albeit he has lost a lot of some of his councillors for sure, as you pointed out, but he still has that majority at city council. Uh, can you stop him at this point? I mean, at this point, doesn't it look like a done deal? Uh, well, I think one thing is clear is that nothing's ever a done deal, uh, and one of the reasons that we're trying to educate the public with with our polls and and uh, releasing information is so that some of the um, less than transparent data through this transition plan can actually be brought to the public's um, attention. So I think every day what you're seeing is more and more people are turning against this costly plan. Uh, I mean, for example, just last week, the Minister of Labour uh, and the MLA for Surrey Newton was acknowledging concerns uh, about the costs and transparency of this plan. So the mayor. Why? Why? What is the case to keep the RCMP in Surrey? Like, what would what would you say? Why is it a, a better in your mind to keep the Mounties? Well, local knowledge, local experience, right? Uh, you have a lot of members who are vested within that community. A lot of success stories with respect to um, uh, community engagement. Uh, crime right now in Surrey is uh, at an all-time low, 10-year low, slowly decreasing over time. So they have been very effective. Through our polling data, what we've seen is that a uh, majority of Surrey residents actually prefer to keep the RCMP or prefer to keep it with improvements. What those improvements might be is, let's sit down and let's consult on what we need to uh, address. You know, is there an issue in the Wally or the Newton district? Are we talking about youth and gangs? You know, the Surrey Gang Enforcement Team is a fantastic example of youth engagement in high schools. So if we need to address specific areas, I'm certain the RCMP would be more than willing to sit down with community leaders and talk about focused approach. All right, welcome back. My guest is Brian Sove. He's the president of the National Police Federation. They are the union representing RCMP officers across Canada. And we're talking about the plan to get rid of the Surrey RCMP. They have a new poll this morning. says most Surrey residents want to keep the Mounties now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 98.9.
98, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Brian in Surrey. Hey, Brian. Hi. Um, yeah, let me first say I have the highest respect for the RCMP, yeah. but um, I would prefer to see a new police force come into Surrey because strictly because of performance. Um, what seeing you, where, what do happened, you think, where do you think they have not performed well, Mounties? Oh, I'd have to say, especially in the gang situation and the amount of shootings uh, happening in Surrey, um, if, you've, if you really think about it, when's the last time you heard of a major drug bust in Surrey? When have you heard of a major, let's say, um, a gangs being uh, arrested in Surrey? When's the last time you heard of all these illegal guns being, um, that are being used? When's the last time you heard those were, uh, like, say, a major bust on that? It's just pure performance. I think it's time for a new direction. Right, let's go Brian Sove. Brian, what do you say to that? Well, I'd say, uh, you know, the, if you want to talk gangs, I think a lot of it has to do with education at the youth level. And the Surrey gang enforcement team has actually been extremely effective there. Uh, the statistics show that crime is at a, uh, on a decreasing trend over the last 14 years in Surrey. So the police force in Surrey, the RCMP, have been doing extremely well. Uh, if we just want to talk about uniform presence, you know, whether it's uh, traffic or something to those things, well, then maybe we need to talk about resource levels. And really, that's a discussion that has to happen with uh, the community as well as its elected council and the police service as to find out how much police do you want on your streets. Uh, you know, it is proven that a uniform presence reduces crime. So if we need more yeah. cops, then let's talk about how many cops we need. What, what is the current plan right now to replace the RCMP? Like, when is the new municipal force supposed to be up and running? I think uh, uh, Mr. Opal uh, called it an ambitious timeline in his report uh, to go April 2021, yeah, begin that, that transition. Okay, so we're talking like a less, less than a year. So is that, how does the COVID-19 pandemic impact that timeline, in your, in your opinion? Well, based on the, the survey results or the poll results, the residents of Surrey are saying, you know, the, the city is going to be announcing a budget shortfall and they've committed uh, at least $19 million to this transition over the next year. So basically, the residents are saying we need to realign our priorities. We need to look at those who are affected by this pandemic. We need to make sure that local businesses survive, that populate possibly property taxes are deferred and take care of those priorities versus okay. going on this costly plan. Let's go back to the phone lines. Gord on the line in Surrey. Hi, Gord. Yeah, hi. hi. Uh, I'm also, uh, as the last caller, uh, I'm in favor of our own uh, police force. I'm not a big fan of the RCMP either. I've uh, been in uh, Surrey for over 50 years and I've seen the uh, crime go up and up and uh, I'd prefer to have our own police force here. We'd have uh, more control over the police force as opposed to uh, having to answer to Ottawa, that type of thing. Uh, also, um, wouldn't you have wouldn't the, you have fewer uh, officers though? Pardon me. You'd have fewer police officers. Well, I, I don't know how many police officers we would have. Uh, and, many, and and to answer the uh, uh, yeah. the fellow there that. Uh, 
uh, RCMP um, want to stay here, well, I, I don't think there'd be a problem with that. They could probably uh, join the new police force. They'd probably be happy to have them. And uh, well, also, sure, the I'm uh, sure there would be, would be a lot of Mounties would switch over and join the new municipal police force for sure. Of course, there would. And and the yeah. uh, the the poll itself saying ninety percent of uh, Surrey favor it. I mean, ninety percent of Surrey is probably somewhere around four hundred and fifty thousand people. I mean, you can skew any kind of number with a poll. So uh, explain the poll. Explain how he gets 90% out of a a 500,000 population. How did you get 90%, Brian? Well, if you actually, if you look at the the poll data, you know, the uh, basically it was exactly that, that mayor and council need to take a step back and evaluate its spending plans to ensure they are focused on the most urgent priorities open-ended to capture uh, temperature of the audience. Uh, 60% were strongly in agreement and 30% somewhat agreed. So 90% agreed with that statement. Yeah, okay, so it's not 90% want to keep the Mounties. It's 90% say the city should focus their priorities. Exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, all right. I mean, some people might call that a bit of a sneaky poll. You know what I mean? Well, no. Sorry, if you want to talk about keeping the Mounties, actually, yeah. it's seventy-seven percent want okay. to keep the RCMP or keep the RCMP with some form of improvements. And improvements could be exactly like the uh, first caller was saying: How do we look at our priorities in what we do as enforcement? Is it yeah. gangs? Is it guns? Is it right. traffic enforcement? Let's have some consultation and and put the police where we need them. Let's go to Kara on the open line in Surrey. Hi, Kara. Hi. Hi, go ahead. I I was in South Surrey, and that community has changed a lot. And one of the things that drove me to really want a local police force originally was a lack in confidence of the RCMP and a really stark increase in crime. Me and my neighbors, we had vehicles broken into. We had three drug houses around us. Like It, it was a beautiful community in Morgan Creek. And it just seemed to change overnight. And I personally went to an RCMP officer who was addressing a uh, break and enter into a vehicle. And uh, he told me, how do you know it's a drug house? How do you know it's not doctors that are coming and going all times of the night? And I just I just kind of sunk. And so now I don't know what the answer is because there has been a lot of urban development in there. But when I hear that Surrey crime has gone down, I really question Surrey's a big place. And it has certainly gone up in some places. Okay, okay Kara, thank you very much for a great call. I, I, we're running out of time, but we, thir- we got 20 seconds here, Brian. We took three calls, and all three want a local police force. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely concerns are warranted. I don't think anybody uh, can say that, um, you know, we, we want to live in a peaceful society with no risk of any crime. Um, and clearly, our work, uh, as far as the RCMP, okay is not done in Surrey, and we just need to do better. We're committing to do better. Brian, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about some of the key issues facing our country now. The Trudeau government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and Trudeau's new assault weapon ban in the aftermath of the Nova Scotia shootings. My guest is Conservative MP Aaron O'Toole. He represents the Ontario writing of Durham in the House of Commons. He is running to replace Andrew Scheer as the federal conservative leader, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Aaron O'Toole, thanks a lot for coming on. Hello, do we got him? Yeah, it's good to be with you, Mike. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Thanks for doing this. 
Um, let, let's talk about the pandemic, first of all. And you've been critical of, of the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, tell me where we're at right now in, in your estimation of how the federal government is managing this pandemic. Well, first off, I've, I've worked with them uh, as much as possible, too, on some uh, repatriation of, of capacity for masks, uh, securing some masks from Taiwan. It has been an all-hands-on-deck. Uh, I have also been disappointed in both the health and uh, and the economic response, Mike. In fact, when I put out my plan at the end of February, early March, and, and said we needed to adopt a warlike footing, I was mocked for that. Uh, and in fact, Mr. Haiju was still saying no need to close the borders uh, restricting travel won't do anything. So they were they were about a month behind where they should have been. Yeah. Um, I've tried not to be incessant in my criticism. I've been working more towards better solutions, but more community spread happened because we responded way too slowly. And the economic response, they got the business part of it way, way, way too late. So wage subsidy hasn't even been paid yet. That'll go out uh, next week. Um, they should have put more emphasis on uh, wage subsidy, the rent relief for small and medium-sized businesses to preserve as many jobs as possible should have been the focus. And so there, it's been a crisis, no question. There won't be perfection, but there has been a very slow and confused approach from the government, and I've tried to push them in the right direction, as have my colleagues. Uh, and I think overall Parliament's been working. I wish it had just been sitting more. They've been trying to avoid scrutiny. What do you think of uh, the the government's reliance on data from China and the World Health Organization? I know you've been very critical of the World Health Organization. I'm curious what you think as well about your colleague uh, Derek Sloan, who's also running against you for the leadership of the Conservative Party and his criticism of Dr. Theresa Tam and questioning whether she's working for China or for Canada. What did you think of those comments? Well, look, I said I... I uh I said those were inappropriate comments. You never impugn the motives of a public official, even when you're frustrated. I'm frustrated, too. But that's where frustration leads to inappropriate conduct. And I, and I said that at the time. But here's the reality, Mike. Two years ago in the House of Commons, I asked Justin Trudeau about pushing China to stop manipulating the WHO. In fact, the WHO was excluding Taiwan from pandemic planning two, two years ago because of politics. The WHO and the UN is supposed to be devoid of politics. And, and there is so much evidence that the, the WHO has been captured in large part by China um, and has been slow to respond. I asked this two years ago, and Taiwan specifically is a country that we worked with uh, in the SARS pandemic in Ontario, in my area, the greater Toronto yeah. area. Yeah. So it was a real myth, and I think um, we have to... Free countries like Canada have to push for better results from these multilateral bodies uh, like the WHO, like many UN agencies. We can't let them be gamed by other sort of bad actors for their own interests. It's up to the free countries of the world to make sure that these multilateral institutions actually work the way they're supposed to. Speaking to federal conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole, let's talk about the Trudeau's assault weapon ban here now in, in the aftermath of the Nova Scotia shooting. And you've been critical, as has your conservative colleagues, on the, on this plan. But just taking a look at a brand new opinion poll out from Angus Reid, and it, if you believe this poll, it would say that it would suggest that a, a very large majority of Canadians ag- agree with the Trudeau government's banning of these weapons. Your thoughts? Well, it's because a very large majority of Canadians don't understand the issue. And even, Mike, when you describe it as an assault weapon ban, that's the liberal well, that's what Trudeau. That's it. what Trudeau calls right. it. There, there are no assault weapons in Canada, period. And I know this because when I joined the military and came out to Chilliwack and Fraser Valley and learned to fire assault weapons, fully automatic C7, which is a, 
variation of a U.S. machine gun. Uh, we don't, they use language like military styled assault like weapons right. to scare people. Um, what they're banning is they're banning a series of semi automatic weapons that have been around for generations, yeah. but ones that look black or have a different stock. And I would rather have evidence based decisions. Um, you know, look at the horrible attack in Nova Scotia. That was from someone who, who had a criminal uh, background uh, with some domestic, domestic assault and had illegal weapons. They weren't uh, legal. Right. He didn't have a legally possessed weapon. Right. So I, I've been trying to say we need an honest and respectful talk on this. The Trudeau government is soft on crime but hard on law-abiding owners. And I, I think most Canadians don't understand how we screen, train, and license people that, that have firearms in Canada. Uh, I'm going to try my very best to make sure I push back at some of the misleading approach of the government. Even the, the Prime Minister himself said you don't need an AR-15 to go hunting for a deer. Well, there haven't been, you haven't been able to use that type of weapon for hunting since the 1970s. So even what he's saying is wrong, and this was rushed. There's no parliamentary oversight. It's really an example of bad government at its finest. The, the, I guess the problem for the, the conservatives on this, and I, and I take your point about the performance of these weapons are similar to any other kind of a semi-automatic uh, centerfire rifle. Like, you know, I, and I agree that a lot of people don't understand the intricacies of the issue. You know, like there may be people out there who think like you can get a machine gun in Canada or something. Or, you know, the fact is that the the amount of bullets allowed in these in these guns is the same as any other like a hunting rifle is a maximum of five bullets in a in a right in a in a in a, in a clip and so a lot of people don't understand that but when you take a yep. look at the the opinion polling on it though i think trudeau very cleverly has boxed you guys into a corner on it and when he says that you don't need an ar-15 to hunt a hunt a deer and i i take it that it's already illegal to hunt a deer with this weapon most people are going to nod their heads in agreement and say you're right, and that's why you see massive support for the government here on this thing now. And so, how do you how do you get around that? I think you get around it by not lying to Canadians. So, Mr. Blair lies to Canadians. That just Trudeau lies to Canadians, and I'm not saying that to be provocative. What's he lying, about? What's he lying about? Well, about where AR-15s are used, military-like, assault-like. Uh, for since I was four, uh, there have been no assault weapons permitted for possession in Canada um, since the 1970s. And so what they do is they trade on emotion and misleading claims to, to do this. In fact, I heard Minister Blair on the, on the weekend, Mike, say, well, I'm not going to get into details about the buyback because now all of a sudden uh, these store owners across the country are, are in possession of something they've, they by edict decreed to be prohibited. I'm not, he said, I'm not going to get ahead of, of Parliament talking about the buyback. Get ahead of Parliament by ordering council. They, with the stroke of a pen, uh, changed how property was considered in Canada with not a single word debated in Parliament. I think that's wrong. If they want to debate and if we want to truly educate Canadians on how our possession, acquisition and licensing system works, we are very different from the United States. Our law-abiding owners are extremely diligent they're well trained they are not the problem the problem is the fact that we live on the border to the country with the most voracious appetite for for weapons and with the lowest standards of of acquisition so what we have to work is at the border and we have to be stronger on criminals you know bill blair had that approach 
when he was chief of police, he's certainly forgotten that as a liberal minister, whether it's on he's been terrible on the border, he was brutal on the marijuana file, now he's he's misleading people on this. It's quite quite disappointing. Talking to Conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole, speaking of the border and illegal weapons coming across the border, do you have any thoughts on the government, like the loophole here that this assault weapon ban, as the government calls it, would not apply to First Nations? Do, do you think that that uh, creates a problem with potential for illegal guns going across a border, um, say in Quebec, where there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of First Nations ter- territory and reserves that straddle the border? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that problem has become more pronounced in recent years because people know that the Trudeau government, especially with Roxham Road in Quebec and Emerson, Manitoba, was being very lax when it came to the border. Right? We've had sixty thousand people illegally cross the border and claim irregular uh, uh, asylum. I've, I've used both descriptions now, to be fair. And a lot of those straddling uh, Indigenous reserves, both in Quebec and Ontario, have been flashpoints for smuggling from illegal contraband cigarettes to, to firearms for decades. And it's gotten worse under the Liberals. So I, I think that's where we really have to focus our attention. And we have to say to people, this will not make anyone safer. They're, pl- they're trading on emotion and misleading people. And that's, you know, I, okay. I expect better from a parliamentary debate. Last question for you. If, if you become the leader of the Conservative Party and you end up as prime minister in a, in a conservative government, what would your government do on this file? Would, would you make these weapons uh, legally available to Canadians again? Yeah, I would reverse what Trudeau has done. And what I will do, uh, Mike, specifically, is I will open up and and show Canadians, first and foremost, we we will redraft our firearms legislation so people can be crystal clear about what is permitted in Canada, what is not. I want Canadians to know that we have a a system that's very different from the U.S. Justin Trudeau is hoping people make their decisions for these polling questions based solely on emotion. That's why he rush this through. Even their documents were just click and paste from Google. They were giving to MPs midway through our briefing. And there's no parliamentary oversight. This is, this is an example of, of ambulance-chasing t- politics, sadly. That was a term they used against us in the House of Commons. This is, this is something where they've cobbled together, rushed something through. And I would rather say to Canadians, let's have a serious talk so you can make a decision with full facts. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
for you. Let's uh, keep talking about opening up this economy. And I'll tell you, this is going to be a big day and I think even a bigger week here for the management of this pandemic in British Columbia and where we go forward from here. Now at 1.30 this afternoon, uh, that's when Dr. Bonnie Henry will be releasing new modeling of the virus. So showing where the virus is showing up, showing where it's spreading in British Columbia. So this is a critical kind of update on the modeling and where the numbers are, are leading us today. That's at 1.30. Uh, that will be brought to you live here at, on CKNW. Then later this week, now this will be the big one, the government announcing a, some sort of a plan to reopen the BC economy. Now look what other provinces are doing. In the province of Saskatchewan, for example, brought in a very detailed plan to reopen the economy there. If you need to go to the dentist in Saskatchewan, you can go to the dentist today. So when is that going to happen in British Columbia? When are you going to open up the dentist? When are you going to open up the hair salons and barber shops? Let's talk about that last one right now with my guest, Gavin Du. He is the founder of uh, the Forum for Millennial Leadership. And more importantly, he's been helping out some out-of-work uh, hairstylists and barbers. How are you doing, Gavin? Good. Thanks for having me this morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. So first of all, let's talk about your, your campaign to help people who have been out of work in this um, this pandemic, especially if they're hairstylists, right? You got a like a social media hashtag campaign going on and a fundraiser. Tell me about that. Yeah, you bet. We put something up a few weeks ago at uh, www.covidhair.ca, and we encourage people to go on social media and share their funny pictures of bad uh, COVID hair, mostly just because, hey, we thought it would be funny. But it also created an opportunity to uh, drive awareness about the fact that, you know, your missed haircut is somebody's missed paycheck. So let's make yeah. sure that we support those people uh, in the, the how did, how did that? What was the, pick, what was the pickup like on that? A lot of people posting photos and stuff? You know, we got some pretty decent pickup, but I think, yeah. to be honest, people are still really nervous about engaging. And then, to be honest, they're feeling the pocketbook pinch. Uh, so, you know, yeah. we got about online and offline about $1,000 in, uh, which which is good. But, uh, but you know, I think people are still feeling really, really tight right now. Yeah, for sure. There is also an interesting story the last few days, Gavin, for your thoughts. There's an online petition campaign from barbers and hairstylists who are really not, some of them, not that thrilled to go back to work at all. And saying, like, maybe don't rush into this thing. Maybe don't open up the barbershops and salons too early at the risk of exposing people to getting sick. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, when you talk to people in this business, and, you, I, and, and good for you for trying to help people out, uh, when you talk to people in the, in the salon business, the barbershop business, what are they telling you? Are they anxious to get back to work, or have they got some concerns? Yeah, I mean, I, I won't pretend to be more of an expert than I am on the sector, but I would say this. We need to reopen the economy, but we need yeah. to recognize the economy is made up of people, and many of those people are justifiably nervous and uncertain and scared. So we'd all like to get a haircut, but the approach to the issue can't just prioritize our, our vanity. We need to make sure that we're not enabling COVID-19 to spread unintentionally. We need to make sure we're taking the safety of uh, frontline workers into account, and we need to make sure that the approach that is taken uh, reflects the realities of, of running a small business. Yeah, and, and those realities, are, they're tough, especially for this particular sector, right? I mean, if you got to run a business where you're trying to achieve some kind of social distancing, how do you do that when you're running a hair salon or a, or a barber shop? That's pretty tough. And I think those are that's some of the direction and leadership that I think people are looking for from government, right? Like people are looking for a plan. They're looking yeah, for I think some direction. Look, 
right, Mike. I think people have been feeling the pocketbook pinch, and as a result, there's a risk, and we have to acknowledge this risk, of people making bad or unsafe decisions as they return to work or return to their, their day-to-day habits. So, I mean, I would say people have been generally happy with the government in terms of the overall handling of the health response, but now the focus is starting to shift to economic recovery, and we need to see uh, that be equally effective. Gavin, you do a lot of work with young people and millennials uh, in this economy, and I don't know, I mean, this has been tough for young people who I think have been, in a lot of ways, been kind of disproportionately hurt. Like if they're working in the retail industry or they're working in the gig economy or something that a lot of young people do, and they're out of work, you know, they've or their hours have been cut back or they've been laid off. That is pretty tough, and we're going through a difficult recession here, and there could be a tough uh, recovery from it. And, man, you think about young people who already maybe remember the 2008 economic, you know, recession with the economic, the financial crisis, and they got through that, and now they get slammed with this thing again. Like, what are you hearing on that score from young people out there? Uh, Mike, I think it's absolutely brutal for young people. Um, the lion's share of the job losses absolutely have happened for people who are about uh, under 25 especially, as you say, folks who are working in uh, the gig economy or in other, um, in other forms of, of work that are the first to be laid off. And, you know, what's really scary for me is that as, as a generation, I'm an elder millennial, I guess, as a generation, uh, our fortunes have been uh, really negatively impacted by the 08 09 uh, crash. Now what we're looking at is a whole lot of job losses, and I think what we're going to see, unfortunately, is, is potentially... Uh, you know, a jobless recovery or a recovery where not all the jobs come back. And uh, the folks that are going to be the most affected by that are going to be uh, those young people who were just getting started in their careers, just getting started in their lives. So I think we need to make sure that we see uh, a a policy response from government and that we we overall try to make sure uh, that we're creating opportunities for those young people. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's going to be part of the challenge for the government here and coming out with some kind of detailed plan that may come as early as, as this week. You got to give some, I think you got to give people some hope and give them some timetables and some firm dates that we can try to hit and targets to try well, and get things back have, open. I agree. You've got to have hope. You've got to have clarity, predictability, stability. That's what, yeah. you know, investment thrives on, right? Ultimately, we need people to be creating jobs so that folks can be getting into those jobs. Um, and, and quite honestly, I think that we need to see action from government and, and from opposition where they walk that fine line in terms of having constructive conversations about some of the tough labor and, and regulatory issues um, without falling back into ideological positions or trying to score political points.